What's up, everybody? Joe Bonamassa here with another exciting episode of Live from Nerdville. Today, my special guest is host of Rock Talk over 20 years, one of my favorite rock journalists, Mitch LaFon. Thank you very much for, for doing this. You know, every once in a while, I, I'm really intrigued about interviewing journalists who all they do is interview people like myself for a living. And sometimes I like asking questions to people like you because I'm, I'm really intrigued by, you know, how you get into it in the first place. Welcome right. to our show. Well, yes. And as we say in Montreal, because that's my tagline, bonjour. Uh, bonjour. So welcome. Yeah. Uh, so you want to know how I got into it? Well, uh, should we go into the story right now? Well, you know, one of the things is, you know, I'm, I, I've been interviewed a million times. Mm -hmm. And what I've always been intrigued about is, you know, people like yourself, you know, because I always say, like, we all start in our bedroom with a record player, a tape deck, a guitar, mm -hmm. some sort of a copy of Rolling Stone magazine or Kerrang. What was the what was the DNA of your musical life? What was the first time you realized that you actually enjoyed music wow. on a much deeper level than just you know, a, 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 the radio's on in passing. When, when was the first time you fell in love? Well, all right. So, you know, I grew up in a small village of about 600 people. Back in the back in the day in the 70s and 80s, there was nothing. We don't have any businesses in this village. There, there was nothing going on. So the only thing I had was the record player and the vinyls that were there. And so for many years, it was my mom's vinyls. It was ABBA. It was Beethoven's fifth. It was all that stuff. And somewhere around 77, 78, my brother borrowed, didn't buy, he borrowed Kiss's Love Gun and Kiss Double Platinum. And he stuck it on right right by the record player. And I stared at that image and I went, oh, I can't. That's it's Look, look at them. There, there's the girls and all. I, I can't. But eventually I pulled out that vinyl and I saw the dripping blood and I put it on and I heard shock me and I heard I stole your love and I heard those kiss songs and I went, yeah, all right, right. Now, now we're in. And then and then I moved over to this double platinum album, which if, if you know, is this silver shiny album. And of course, you, you fold it out and it's silver and shiny and I'm whatever, nine years old. And it was just magnificent. And so so that's where it started. It, it was falling in love with those visuals. And, and I think sometimes we forget that visuals are as much part of the music as the music. And Absolutely. those, yeah, oh yeah. And those visuals drew me in and I slapped on those vinyl records and that was it. it everything Kiss was, was, was it. And of course that was at the height of Kiss marketing. You know, you had the, uh, the pinball machines and you had the love gun and the lunch boxes. And so you could take that love for, for those vinyl records and go over, and there was no Walmart back then, at least not here, but it was Kmart and, and Zellers, and you could go buy that, that Kiss Lunch. And so there was an extension of the music. So it, it was more than just the music. It became your lifestyle. You had right. the Kiss Lunchbox. You had the Kiss T-shirt. You had the Kiss whatever. And, and that extension is, is what – and I, I – I, thought that every band did that you know you looked around and you went well wow, where's the where's the cheap trick lunchbox where's the aerosmith lunchbox and you, and you didn't have it so so that's where it started it was my brother borrowing those kiss records and i just went wow all right and and it's, it's listen it's the visual absolutely the visual that got me into it 
So, you know, one of the things I wanted to ask you is, um, you know, for me was my, my father, you know, he would play records every every Saturday. And, and one of the records that really stood out, no pun intended, was the Jethro Tull stand up record. Right. You know, so he puts it on a new day yesterday comes on and I'm I'm eight years old, nine years old, thumbing through this thing. It's a it's a fold out. And all of a sudden, these these characters from like a Baroque Shakespearean play <laughs> pop up. And one of the things I want to ask you is like, you know, we live in a social media world. Hell, right. we're broadcasting this thing on a social media platform. Do you think that with the accessibility of artists, especially rock and roll, do you think the accessibility kind of kills the mystique? Or is it good to be that available for everyone to kind of give them a glimpse into what you're having for breakfast or your, what your house looks like? Or does that the, the, the pulling out the, the, the blood-stained vinyl of a, of a Kiss record, do you, do you think that plants more of a seed and, and makes your rock and musical heroes larger than life? I actually think it's both because I think – the fandom in the in the knots 2000 and above it has changed i think if you take my daughter and my kids and you show them a kiss record with the blood i don't think that talks to them anymore what talks to them is going to instagram and seeing them at the pool and seeing them in vegas and and that's what attracts a newer fan so i i don't really think we can compare the two because i think fandom has changed right but for me it was absolutely essential and that mystique of Whose kiss, what makeup, when are they going to take it off was essential for me. Right. I don't think that I don't think that would work for for Jada and for Ryan. But, you know, the, the other thing was when Kiss came to town or Aerosmith or whoever, it was an event because it was once a year. It was once every two years. It was once every three years. And you didn't know the set list. So you'd go and you'd go, oh, my God. And then they would play an encore and you'd go, oh, we must have been a great crowd. They played an encore. Right. And, you know, as we got into social media, you go, oh, it's the same set list as the last 20 towns. And, oh, it's the same encores as the last 20 towns. And and, and so you lose some of that. But you know what? I, I don't think either one is better or I, I think it's just different. And well, you know, I, back in the 70s, I mean, to, to launch a record to radio and to properly promote it took millions of dollars. You were right. buying you were buying print media, which was at a premium at that point. God forbid you had enough for television ads and you were then you were, you were still in that. They never it's let's call it like it is. It was the payola you know, era of radio right. where they were they were trading, literally trading bags of cocaine for mm -hmm. for, for, for spins on the radio. Now, if you have enough followers, you can just take a photo, point and click, and all of a sudden, the people that are interested in your in your brand or the kind of music that you play, you know, for free, literally, hey, you you go, hey, I have a new record out, you know. Right. I also my my issue with social media is the fact that people then judge everything you do in real time as a referendum on your career. Right. You know, because there was a lot of times back in, and especially the late seventies, early eighties, where where bands would experiment, and and now it'd be career ending. What do you, what do you think? You know, what do you think are some of the differences between, like, bands having free reign to experiment, and then having these confines of social media and going, I, I need to just play to the the play to the base, really. Well, wow, that's a good question. You know, one of the things with social media is that, yeah, you get the free advertising and, yeah, you get a million followers, but then you have to keep them engaged. 
And right. sometimes you follow somebody and they don't post anything for three weeks, four weeks, a month. And then you're just like, eh, I'm not going to bother checking. So you do have to be continuously creative and have content that is at once not spammy, but at the same time interesting. And, and it's a very fine line. And in terms of experimenting, you know, there are some bands you look at ACDC or Kiss or Aerosmith and fans don't want them to experiment. They want ACDC to be ACDC. And yet other bands have built an entire career on being experimental. Look at Madonna. Look at even Billy Joel. Look at U2. Every album is different. And if they did the same old album, fans would go, hey, no, 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 Madonna. You've already done Holiday. You've already done like right. a version. Move along. Uh, so, so there's room for both and, and, you know, listen, I'm a rock fan, so I, I like my rock to be somewhat stable whenever a, a band like the Scorpions or Kiss, you know, they do eye to eye or they do the elder fans go, Oh my God, what was that? You can't do that. That's not a Kiss record. Don't do that. So, you know, it's, it's, it's damning. Talk to me about the Scorpions. Now I'm a huge Scorpions fan. I mean, I thank you. Um, I know Matthias, and and I've, I have a picture of me with Klaus when I was like 13 years old, and I've been a Scorpions fan since since I've I've had a Scorpions record. Right. And you know, Winds of Change was my conduit to the Scorpions. Pre that, I didn't really have any familiarity. But what do you think? There are some bands that come out, put out great music, mm -hmm. and have an appeal worldwide right. they can sell out they can sell out the arena in tulsa they can sell out the arena in berlin they can sell out the arena in montreal and it just seems to have a universal appeal now a band like the scorpions you know they're a big band here in the united states but in europe that's a that's a stadium event versus right. maybe a five or six thousand seat event maybe a little bit more if they're packaged with the with the right with that right opening band right. what do you think you know and there's some bands like the stones and there's bands like bon jovi just they just kill all over what do you think the disparity is or what do you think the the disconnect to sometimes different audiences well i'll tell you what because i've had this discussion a lot with artists and i've had a, a lot with different uh managers and I think it really comes down to your management team and how the band was sold to that market. Um, you know, because you look at status quo, for example, almost a stadium Great act in, in, yeah. in, in the UK. They come to Florida. They're playing what? A 300 seater. I mean, right. it, it, it's it's bizarre. And when I've talked to Francis Rossi, when I've talked to these bands, they say, well, you know what? We had a UK manager. They weren't able to do the states uh lawrence gowan of sticks i had a long 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 conversation because he was gowan in canada through the 80s criminal mind and all that stuff right. and i said lawrence why weren't you a big star on mtv and he said listen the record company and this is the word he used sandboxed me they decided that i was going to be a canadian territory artist and they weren't going to invest outside so Listen, sometimes it comes down to the music. You know, Br British metal compared to American metal is very different, and sometimes the ears don't connect. Right. But a lot of times it comes down to that management team and to how it was marketed. And and listen, Lawrence Gowan, Criminal Mind, should have been all over MTV. Canadian company said, no, we're going to sandbox you. And it's like, wow. So so that's what happens sometimes. It, it really comes down to the team behind you because ultimately i think fans like all kinds of music 
They do. And they don't know it. You know, if it's sometimes it's hiding in plain sight. I mean, I, I look at the British blues boom of the 60s uh-huh. and and they're doing Albert King covers coming over here to America. Cream is playing Madison Square Garden and Albert King's playing the Fillmore with with 10 other bands because right. Bill Graham's going, you got to check this guy out, you know, right. but but they're both playing Born Under a Bad Sign. You know, right. it just it. So talk to me when you got to your first interview from what I've read was Gene Simmons. Yes. When you were 11 years old. Correct. How does the, how does the music lover in you go from I love music. Now I'm curious. Now I want to ask artists about it. How did you make that leap? Wow. OK. So that's an interesting one. And, and it, again, it goes back to my environment. Listen, I, we were in this place with nobody, no public transit, no businesses, there was two channels on TV, so I had a lot of time to stare at records, and I would stare at O-Coin management, and I and I had this idea one time on the back, because in the old days, you'd phone up the operator, you know, 212-555, and I got the number, and I said, hey, uh, would would KISS be available for, for an interview? I phoned, I phoned up O-Coin management, right. and they said yes, and I went, huh, <laughs> I went, really? And they said, well, we'll set you up with Paul Stanley, blah, 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 blah. And before we uh, we had to go out to New York, because they, the, the whole idea of phoners really didn't exist. Yeah. Uh, they phoned back and they said, oh, unfortunately, Paul won't be available. Would, would you mind talking to Gene? And I was like, all right, why not? So, and, you know, part of that, that, that inquiring mind comes from the environment. There was nothing here to do. There was no TV to stare at. So you had to go look at magazines you had to go you know you had to go f- seek information right a- and so that's where that curiosity came from the fact that i've always been good at being a self-starter and getting out there uh phoning that number because all the other fans were sitting at home going oh man i'd love to meet gene one day how do i do it and my brain went I'll figure out how to do it just call him call him <laughs> right. you know and and I know it's going to sound strange for an 11 year old, but Kiss was on a downward spiral, and in that time, you know, nobody re- the the un sorry the Dynasty tour was sort of a eh, uh, didn't really sell well. And I thought, wow, this is the perfect time, and it worked. They they right. were essentially desperate <laughs> for for press, and I, so we drove down with my mom, and uh, she's like, well, I'm going to have to go in as the person doing the interview, and I had to write all her questions. And so right. that, that's where it came from. So the, so where the inquiring mind comes from, really, uh, without sounding bad, probably just boredom. There was just nothing else to do in Centerville, Quebec in 1979, 80. There was nothing, you know, stare raccoons. A lot of people ask me, like, you know, like, well, why did you practice so much when you were a kid? It's like, I'm like, well, let me tell you something. Growing up in Utica, New York, which is basically the same geography and topography as, yeah, as, well, as southern Canada. You're four hours from me. You're four hours. And basically, you if you caught a cold summer, a cold, rainy summer, you weren't going out. It was three, four days a week. It was rainy. It was cold. It wasn't, it wasn't a great summer. I've been there. And the winter started in October and I... lasted until May. And it was cold and gray and depressing. And you would wake up <laughs> and you go, I got to figure out a way to get out of here, you know? Yep. And no offense to my brethren in Utica, I'm very proud to be born and raised in Utica, New York. But first time I went to California when I was 11 years old, I said to myself, I want to be involved in this, not, you know, and that was that motivation. What do you think um, makes a good interview? 
when you're interviewing somebody, because, you know, um, sometimes, I mean, I've been guilty of this if I'm tired and I have a phone or at 630 and I'm just not chatty. Um, what do you think, as a journalist, what makes a good interview? Is it is it your job to, like, elicit some sort of, like, emotional response, controversy, or do, do you subscribe to, like, it's just a conversation and there's no gotcha questions or any of that kind of stuff? Well, okay, so my philosophy on, on what makes a good interview really comes down to two things. First of all, you need to be researched. Yeah. You know, when you interview a, let's say I'm interviewing you, and I say, hey, Joe, you've got a great new album, tell me about it, and you go, okay, we're promoting some of that great first question. Second question, uh, what's your favorite uh, ice cream flavor? And you're like, oh, really? And, and we've seen those kinds of interviews before. Yeah. I've been involved in those. I, I've had I've had it where I put out forty three records, right? And 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 this was as of last two years. Somebody asked me, so "Is this your first album?" I said, "Hang up the phone, go to Wikipedia, <laughs> call me back. I'm not trying to be an asshole. Just just right. Google me and then call me back." Anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry. So, so so that to me is the is the fundamental. You have to be researched. It has you you have to be able to connect to the artist, and not just do. The same old, same old, because I look at sometimes at other interviews and I go, ah, OK, Joe talked about like we did an interview recently and it's like Joe has talked about being a 12 year old prodigy in every interview. Right. There's no point in me asking him about that, because if you're a Bonamassa fan and you're listening to this interview, which is probably why you're listening to the interview, you're like this story again. So for me, it's to try to get something not controversial, but maybe out of the ordinary or different. Like I just interviewed Klaus from, from the Scorpions. That's the one that's running today. Yeah. And we talked about working with Desmond Child in 2007 on the Humanity Hour 1 album. Nobody really talks about that with Klaus. And he was like, oh, wow, hey, somebody's talking about this album. Everybody's right. like, tell me about Blackout. Tell uh, the other thing is I never write any questions down. Never. I, I have no questions written down. I know why we're on the phone. We're on the phone to plug your new album. We're on the phone to plug your new tour. We're on the phone to plug your whatever. So that's got to be the first one or two questions. Okay, tell me about the album. And after that, I listen and I hear something and I go, ah, Joe mentioned he uses whatever, this kind of guitar pick. And I have notes on the computer and I go, okay, well, let's go over here and let's go down that little rabbit hole. And then, you know, at some point, if the rabbit hole stops, I go, okay, well, tell me about working with so-and-so tell me about and and so uh the fundamentals are be researched don't be contrived uh and listen i mean right. listen because there's a lot of times where the interview writes itself you as joe will give me an answer and i'll go ah that's five extra questions right. and that's what you got to do and a lot of people and i've seen them I, you know i've been to press tents at heavy montreal or oshiag or any of these festivals and you'll see somebody walk in and they'll be like, all right, so uh, Joe, question one, tell me about the new album. Great, great, okay, yes, yeah, so stop talking. Question two, all right, tell me about the tour. And you're still talking and they're just going through and it's just like, oh my God, what are you doing? You've got an artist in front of you, a creative mind in front of you. Work with it, listen to what he's saying, build on what has been said. And so that, that to me is the fundamental of an interview. What's your policy on like if the publicist um, like when we booked our interview, I was just, we just texted each other. I'm like, yeah, I'll be there on Tuesday. Yeah. Right. What's your policy? Like, okay, you get a big, big name rock star 
right. publicist goes to you, here's a list of stuff he doesn't want to talk or he or she doesn't want to talk about. Yes. Um, and, and, it's, and, it's all the, and it's all the stuff you as a journalist go, hey, listen, this is fair game and this is what the fans are mm-hmm. going to tune into this. What do you do? Do you go, I don't want to do the interview or I'll dance around it? Or do you how do you handle that? Wow. It's it's all of the above. First of all, there has to be a mutual respect. If somebody says to you, I don't want to talk about being drunk on the bus uh, last week, you go, "Okay," because ultimately that publicist is the publicist for three or four other artists. Right. So you you shoot yourself in the foot if you go, oh, I'm going to be a smart ass and just go. So, So you can't do that. But sometimes uh i've been told don't ask about this and i go okay and then the artist will bring it up and say well you know uh, that time i was on the bus and i was drunk and you go oh right and then i just go well he mentioned it right what do you want me to do about it so yeah i'll 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 be prepared and when that comes up i will listen and i will go down that road but you have to have a certain respect if if they say please don't talk um hmm i don't want to there was a band the other day that said, please don't talk about our former lead singer. I was going to mention them. Lineup changes must be on the right. top of the please don't mention right. so X's name. And it's like, it's yeah. like, it's like having, it's like having an ex-girlfriend. You know, it's like, it's uh, I don't want to talk about that. So, so yeah. I did, yeah. So I did the interview and we didn't talk about the ex at all. Right. Okay. And, and we had a perfect, but the good thing about it is that we did a half hour interview and it ran all kinds of interesting conversations and interesting roads. And we went all down these rabbit holes and it was, it was great. So it worked. Right. But but sometimes the artist will, will give you these one word answers and you're like, dude, I got half an hour to fill. So (laughs) we're going to get to that lead singer. If you don't, if you don't start talking. Right. Exactly. What's like of all time, you don't have to mention names. Yes, what's because I have hard, to work with these people. <laughs> what's, what's the hardest question you've ever had to ask somebody that you literally, you'd be remiss as a journalist if you didn't ask? Oh, that's easy. That's any time there's a death. Right. You know, when, when an art, you know, I was just forgetting, and I'll mention, I was talking to Liberty DeVito the other day, drummer right. from Billy Joel's band. And he wrote this new book, it's coming out later this month, and he talks about his brother dying of AIDS. Uh, it was in a whole chapter, and then he right. talks about uh, uh, um, uh, Stagmeyer uh, committing suicide, and they are very relevant chapters in his book, and he's made a big thing about writing about it, a- and you're sort of, it, it's almost disrespectful to not ask, like, wow. oh, yeah, they passed away, let's not talk, that's that's rude. Right. So you have to talk about it, but, you know, do, do you really want to talk to somebody about their 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 brother dying? Of, like, even now, I'm uncomfortable. Like, am I being disrespectful mentioning it to you? But but there are these significant chapters in the book, so it's almost like, well, you can't you can't just ignore it because he wrote a whole book about it. But it's so voyeuristic, and right. that's so death death to me is the one that really because I I never know. I, I really don't want to be disrespectful, and with death, that fine line is. Over here, you're respectful, and you whoop, and now you're into that. It's rough. It's 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 difficult because you you know you want to you want to be respectful to your your, your guest, and but you're also there to plug the book, and it's all fair game, you know. If it's right. in the book, you know. And that's why I asked. Yeah, you know, I think you know, 
you know, I just read uh, I read the Stevie Ray Vaughan book um, that Alan Paul did, and uh, I'm in the I'm I'm in a I'm, my in my band is Reese Winans, right? And um, you know, I ask him because we're all I'm a, I'm a Stevie fan, and there are certain things for him that are, that are off limits, even as long as I've known Reese. Where like be like, dude, tell me about what was going on. You're like, well, there was these times we barely made it out alive, and then there's these times where he'll, he'll you know he'll open up. Do you think having that kind of story makes an artist more interesting? Like I, I, I never went through the drugs and the debauchery. I just had a one-sided kind of career where I just was like, hey, listen, I play guitar, people clap. It's a means to an end. I love it. I love my fans. Off we go. Yeah. I, I'm a, I'm a good, I'm a nerd, and then I have a, I have a nice collection of suits. End of story. Interviews over <laughs> in seven minutes. All right. Do, do you find like? artists that have been through the fire and the fury you know sometimes self-inflicted sometimes right. not do you find do you find a, a depth in those artists that are lacking in like say bozos like me no not at all because uh first of all sometimes those stories are very cliche right sometimes especially with bands from the 70s and 80s a lot of the mythical stories were actually contrived by publicists who went, boy, this would really sound good if we told the people that you were one of these guys. Right. But, you know, I, I don't do drugs. I, I don't drink. I don't smoke. I, I never have. Right. So those kind of stories of, you know, Motley Cruz, girl, 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 they don't really interest me. And so as an interviewer, if I'm not interested in what I'm talking about, it makes for a bad interview. So I don't think it necessarily adds to the mystique. I think that I can interview Vince Neil or Joe Bonamassa the same way and end up with the same good story because your path is very different. Like, you know, to, to, to say, how, how does a guy go from Utica and just play guitar and just wear a nice suit, have worldwide success? Obviously, it has nothing to do with groupies. It has nothing to do with snorting ants off a pavement. Right. right. And so that's fascinating because it's like, well, wait a minute. How can I, Mitch LaFon, learn from 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 Joe's experience and up my game? So I, I find that fascinating. And, you know, listen, uh, the Motley Crue stories or those kinds of stories, are they interesting? Are they compelling? They can be. But sometimes it's not that interesting because those people were so wasted that you'll, you'll interview them and you'll say, tell me about 1987. They're like. I really don't remember it. I got nothing, which is why when I read some of their, their books, I look at them and I go, are you sure you're remembering all of this? Or did somebody come out? You know, you, you read those kiss books and you read the, the Peter Chris one and the Paul Stanley one and the, uh, and the ACE one. And they're all completely different stories. And you go, I think I'm going to trust him. He was the most sober, you know? <laughs> right. Exactly. You know, you know, we live in a clickbait right. world now. And oh, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll give you the clickbait for this interview. Like right. when it comes to drugs, I was telling my friend about six months ago and she asked me, she's like, have you ever done like cocaine or any of that? I go, listen to me. I tried weed five times in my twenties. Right. It made me hungry and paranoid, which I wake up in the morning, hungry and paranoid to begin with. I said, <laughs> I don't need. And I said, and I said, when I was just kind of doing like a bit, like a comedy bit, I said, you know, in 31 years in the music business, nobody has ever offered me cocaine of any sort to the point I'm offended. I'm like, <laughs> I'm offended nobody's even offered, right? I know it's happening around me, but nobody's even offered. 
when we do when you do interviews like that, right. like like there's the clickbait. You know, I could just see I'm blabbermouth. Joe Bonamassa is offended. <laughs> nobody's ever offered him cocaine. <laughs> Total bullshit because it's because what they don't do is take the context of the of the bit. It's a comedy right. thing. Like if you're talking to Vince Neil and they're like, oh god, and yeah. I, I think I don't even remember 1987, but I think somebody snorted ants off a skateboard. <laughs> Boom! There's there's the clickbait, right. and 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 they usually use some sort of unflattering photo of the of the protagonist, and and you know 1987, I snorted ants off a off a skateboard, and they get people to click on these things, and it has nothing to do with the context, and then the and then the, the inevitable pile. I've been a victim of that a few right. times, sometimes self-inflicted, sometimes not. What do you what do you think about that kind of journalism? Does it does does it make you just go, man? Because you're one of the good ones, and it makes you go, man, this, it, it, this is bullshit. It it irritates me. For I'll tell you why it irritates me. First of all, because when you decontextualize something, it has no meaning anymore. It it right. just, you know, I for the better or for the worst will run an interview all the way through. Sometimes I sound like I've asked a bad question and sometimes the art, but I go, you know what? This is what the conversation was. And you can listen to it and hear exactly what we said to each other and you can find nuggets. And, but the, the, the clickbaity stuff, and I'll give you an example and we'll talk about blabbermouth. They, a few years ago, took an interview I did with, uh, Lou Graham. Right. And they, they took a couple of parts about from Lou and at the bottom, they added a 2004 interview with Mick Jones calling Lou Graham all kinds of not nasty words. Right. And Lou Graham's wife phoned me and goes, you're banned from all our shows forever. I go, for what? They go, you're on Blabbermouth. I go, I didn't write it. They right. wrote it. They go, yeah, but you did the interview, so you're responsible. I go, no. <laughs> right, right, exactly. And, and and that drives me crazy. And the other thing that drives me crazy is, you know, on my socials, when I post an interview and stuff, and I get some really horrific comments sometimes of, yeah, well, he's a, a, a drug, blah, blah, blah. I'll, I'll, I'll clean them up. I'll, the ones I see, I will delete and I will try to keep it as clean because I'm here to promote the artist. They did me a favor. Right. And I'm not going to repay them by kicking them in the butt and going, Oh well, I didn't say Joe was a loser. This guy said it. That's not. No, I'm responsible. Yeah, it it just it devolves into this pile on. Right, and, and, and I do think that sites like like Blabbermouth and all those other ones on their social medias they should clean it up a bit because ultimately they are promoting these bands. And if the bands decided, hey, you know what? Tell my publicist I don't want to be on that site anymore. They'd be out of business. And so they, they, they should have a respect to the people that are actually giving them money because they're making – they're monetizing your content. You and know? it's also too – I mean like they have a – I think they had – it's it, they have a responsibility. Like I, I know um, my friend Mike Portnoy. Every, yes. He cannot tie his own shoes without and – say, and say the words I'm going to tie my own shoes without it being on blabbermouth. Yeah. In Him some, and John Karabi. Him and John Karabi yeah. just always – in, in some sort of context of dream theater, you know right. what I mean? And, and I'm friends with all those guys, you know? And I just go, it's not that antagonistic, but it, it's like, it's almost like the professional wrestling of journalism. It, it's right. like, it's, it's not, it's not fun until there's, there's, there's all out warfare on the comments. There's all out, you know, but what, what to me is unfair is what they what they what they don't really think it through in three dimensions is the fact that you know a guy like Mike Portnoy or John Karabi or any any of these people like whoever's 
whoever's the du jour, you know, artist of the day, you're you're making a referendum on a lifetime's worth of work. You know, it's not like it's not like these guys just picked the thing up and decided I want to try this drumming thing out. Mike's been playing his whole life, you know, and and. And, it, and it's very easy to marginalize, you know. And, and I, I, I find it, I find it just a bit strange that that everything is online now, and it's and because you could just type anything, and it, and it just yeah. and it just it goes viral. Yeah, you miss, and you miss the magazines. Do you miss do you miss the print? I do miss the magazines. Let me just finish on Portnoy for a second. You know. I did a master's in psychology, and so in psychology, there's this theory that every ten years you become a new person. Right. And I'll give you a quick thing. You know, the five-year-old you and the 15-year-old you are obviously not the same. Right. And if the 25-year-old you met the 15-year-old you, you'd be like, oh, you had that haircut? You know, because we all look back and go, I wore those pants to high school? Oh, geez. Right? And the 35 to the... And so the problem sometimes with artists is that we don't, as media, allow them to have these rebirths. So Mike Portnoy is the guy from Dream Theater, 1997, period. That's it. And it's like, no, Mike, like you and like me, looks back at those pictures and go, oh, I was wearing my hair like that. Oh, my God. And, and we should allow for that. We should allow for the fact that people every 10 years become a new person. And I, I think that's a fabulous psychological theory. I, I mean, I really I ascribe to it. Exactly. Because everybody grows, you know, and not right. many people know that he's a great singer. He's a great songwriter. He's a great all around musician because mm-hmm. that's not, that doesn't that doesn't sell clicks. We're not right. we're not selling copies and we're selling clicks. Yes. You now, know? as far as the magazines, uh, let me just cut you off for that. For yeah. Do I miss the magazines? Uh, yes and no. And I'll tell you why. Yes. Back in the day, it was nice to sit down because like, again, there was nothing going on here. So to, to pull out something and have a little pinup poster of Kiss and then stick it with some sticky tack on the wall. Yeah. Fabulous. Uh, but listen, you look at Hit Parader. They didn't really have any writers. It was all cut and paste of uh, publicist press releases. Yeah. If you really, if you really look at it, they just took press yeah. releases and they reprinted them. Uh, the information was always three, four, five months old. Right. And it'll be like, oh, you know, Joe Bonamassa is releasing an album in July, and uh, you get the magazine, and then for whatever reason, it's delayed, and now you're reading it in September, going, hey, this, he should have put out an album two months ago. What what happened? Right. And so there was no way to be current with what the band or the fan or whatever was doing uh these days i like the instant access that, that you can get from sites you know if i have to research something it's right there and i can find out all kinds of stuff and ah, oh, he said this and but sometimes also it's not accurate i read listen i read something i put out a, a kiss tribute album in 2013 on my birthday which also happened to be my wife's father's birthday who had died of cancer and it was a whole thing and I read online, it came out like, you know, in October. And I'm like, well, no. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, exactly. No, I, I know that's wrong. And and so sometimes the information is just thrown up so slapstick. Right. That it's, in, it, it's completely inaccurate. Uh, it, it's completely decontextualized. And there are too many. You know, it's nice. You, you go to Ultimate Classic Rock, you go to Blabbermouth, it's there, it's fine. But then there's all these tertiary ones, and it's just at some point it gets so whittled down and the information, and they all try to have their own little shtick. I'm going to be the guy that calls people out. I'm going to be the guy that says Joe can't do this. I'm going to be the really nice. 
And at some point, it's like, eh, you know what? It was so much easier just to buy cream. <laughs> yeah, it really, yeah, exactly. I think the volume of content, because, right. you know, like now that, you know, now that, um, uh, you know, everybody for the last four months has basically been housebound and, you know, antisocial, like I've been practicing for 25 years. You you go you you see Thank online you. that they're actually selling podcast kits, right? Meaning you get the you get the microphone, you get the little preamp, you get the 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 everyone, including including this carpetbagger, is a broadcaster now because right. we're, we're all trying to pivot and find different ways to stay current. What do you think about that? Like, I think it's just the, the amount of content is so vast that it dilutes the real stuff because it's like I used, agree. used to be able to buy five magazines, guitar world, guitar player, yeah. Rolling Stone, cream, you know, whatever, whatever's, you know, and, right. and it, these were, these were real journalists and that like it was, it was vetted content and it was, whether you agree with it or not, it was, it felt pro to me. Now, yeah. oh, it's absolutely. Like, now everybody's a broadcaster and everybody's got a podcast and everybody's, but you're one of the, you're, you're one of the people that have been in it for 20 years. I mean, what yeah. do you, do you just roll your eyes and go, here comes another one. Here comes another one. You know, what do you, what do you, do you change anything about what you're doing to react to the amount of content? Or do you just go, I've been Mitch LaFon for 20 years and I'm going to keep doing it. Yeah. You know what? Ultimately, I always feel that content is king. That, that that to me. So uh, my last few interviews have been Coverdale, have been Ma uh, Klaus Mein, have been Dennis D. Young, have been Liberty DeVito. So I've made a very conscious effort in these pandemic times to go get A-listers. Right. Because, you know, normally every so often you, you have to go talk to whatever. And I don't mean to insult anybody, but you have to talk to a faster pussycat or an L.A. guns because, you, you know, you need to add flavor to what you're doing. But now I see everybody's doing that. Everybody's interviewing everybody. So you go, okay, you know what? We got to back away from maybe some of the B and C and D bands and stick to those because I have to rise above. And But that's complicated because right. not every A band is available every week. Not right. every. So so that's what I, and I, I know that might sound bad and I probably insulted some of the B and C list bands. No offense meant, but, you know, uh, you have to. Um I, I'll tell you my Paul Stanley story about like I've ne I've never been in, I, I I'm at best on my best day a D or E list celebrity okay that's 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 mm. a, on my best day mm. and I, I disagree remember, I remember in 2008 I'm in the Middle East and I'm doing this corporate gig out there and I get a call from 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 uh, Doc McGee's office going hey um, please hold for Paul Stanley I'm like what what, what is this <laughs> what is this I've never I never talked to him. he calls me up and he goes listen. My son Evan plays guitar, and his two favorite guitar players are Eric Clapton and yourself. And he goes, no offense, but I figured it'd be a lot easier to get you on the phone than Eric Clapton. I said, Paul, no offense taken. I get it. I'm easy. Evan's a great player, by the way. He's a great player. And I love Paul, and like we've been we've been friends for we've been friends ever since then. And and it's like he's like, you know, one of my you know best buds in the I'm gonna I'm gonna talk to you about maybe a controversial subject. Maybe you don't want to talk about it, but I think it's relevant anybody. is in in a journalistic um, context. Right. The right. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yes. Yes. Who's in and who's out? Now I'll preface <laughs> this: this is not a referendum on who's in. Everybody's deserving of the statue. I know two two of my friends have the statue. Reese and Glenn Hughes couldn't be happier. Right. Right. What took them so long? I have no idea. Right. Right. 
But they are, when you're talking about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I just jotted down some, just, just some names that people may have heard of that are not in. Judas Priest, yep. Thin Lizzy, yep. Todd Rundgren, Warren Zevon, Iron Maiden, Tina Turner as a solo artist, right. Free, Bad Company, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, and Jethro Tull. Can I give you my first reaction? My first just reaction? Give your first reaction of like, does it does being in the Hall of Fame mean anything, or is it there's is there such a? I, I don't well, even. What, I mean, ultimately, it means nothing. Right. You know, uh, whether uh, you know the guys from Tesla ever get into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, does it really mean that Tesla's music is invalid? No. Uh, no. But my first reaction when that comes up, and obviously you talked about Iron Maiden and, and Thin Lizzy, but I always go straight to Foreigner. They dominated 77 to 86 about. Yes. First five albums. First five albums were top five albums on Billboard's 200 album chart. First five. The yeah. first one, the sophomore. And I've looked it up. I don't think any other band has had their first five albums be top five. Right. You go to any you know, movie or commercial and you'll hear hot blooded and you, any classic, you'll drive in any state, whether it's Mississippi, Missouri, or Montreal, Canada, you will hear one of those songs. They have changed the way that pop song, that pop rock song was written. Right. And they're never even mentioned. And no. you're like, wow. And you look at Iron Maiden, you mentioned Iron Maiden. They, took i guess from from what was going on with sabbath and stuff but then they turned it into their own thing in terms of marketing in terms of imagery in terms of mascots in terms of planes this everybody wants to be them and i think i think if everybody wants to be you that makes you be one want to that makes you a rock and roll hall of famer you know everybody right. wants to be babe ruth right uh, and i think that's that's one of the ways you have to sort of look at it if if every single fan desires to be that guy, it's probably because they've influenced you around. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and I know a lot of I, you know uh, I know a lot of people that are in Hall of Fame. Oh, band by or, the way, Huey Lewis needs to go in. Uh, Huey Lewis. So <laughs> yeah. ima imagine imagine putting together a festival, a rock and roll festival of the ones that are not in. You could put Bad Company in there. You could put mm -hmm. Pat Benatar. You could put Thin Lizzy. You could put Foreigner and Huey Lewis. You start the, you start the show. You can, whoever's head, it doesn't matter who headlines. You can right. start the show at three o'clock and you can run until midnight. And, and all you ask the bands to do is play, just play their hits. They could right. literally play nine hours of life-changing music. Yes. And you go, of life-changing rock and roll. And you go, how does that not, how is, where's the disconnect in Cleveland that, that to me, what my biggest fear is what happened to a friend of mine who was a bass player in a very influential prog band. Right. I knew him for years. I loved the man. And I had conversations with him. He's like, you know, it's like, we've been doing this since the 1970 and, and we've made some huge albums. We played stadiums. And I'm like, I'm like, Chris, your music has changed my life and my right. father's life and and he's like man just before i he was before i died love to just you know be be acknowledged by the rock and roll hall of fame of, for our contributions in the music and i know a lot of people feel that way right and i know some people just say ah fuck them you know whatever I, I don't care if i get in but there's always a side that it's just the validation of a life's work right and he in but even the rock and roll hall of fame has a disconnect you look at the red hot chili peppers 
Right. And every single person who touched a guitar or an instrument is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And then you look at uh, Black Sabbath and they go, oh, no, 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 Ronnie James Dio doesn't count. And you go, of course he counts. Yeah, of course he counts, right. <laughs> and then you look at Kiss, they go, Eric Carr doesn't count. You go, yes, he does. How, how does Josh whatever, whatever from Red Hot get in and Ronnie James Dio? And you're like, okay, I don't understand now. I don't, I don't get what you're doing. Like, I thought Tommy Boland should have went in with Deep Purple. Yeah, I thought Tommy Boland should have went in just as a just as a member of Deep Purple. There's the first four you know iterations of mm -hmm. the band, and it, you know until until they basically had to do a hard stop and then reboot with Joe and Turner and you know, and and, and so at the end of the you know it's like, and I know it meant something to to Tommy's brother you know because I've I, I've gotten to know his family, you know it's it's one of the things. Why is rock and roll, and I get this with the blues, why is rock and roll so polarizing as a, as a medium, as a genre of music where it's just debated to the point of, of it, it pits friend against friend and sometimes, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a very hot button issue. You know, people right. love the music and they go, this band deserves to be in and that band doesn't, you know, it's like, and, and there's a lot of, what, 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 what do you think about the music makes it that, oh. that incendiary? That's real simple. It, it comes down to passion. Right. We are passionate about what we love. So if you love Iron Maiden and you've worn the leather, you know, the denim jacket with the patch, and that's your band. And for me to come along and go, Judas Priest is better. I'm invalidating your entire existence. I'm just saying you don't, you know, what you love doesn't exist. And so my passion goes, oh, no, no, no. I love Maiden. They are the best. And so it, that's it. It's just that passion. It right. really comes down to that. When you tell a Kiss fan that Kiss sucks, they go, oh, "What? Do you, because it means your last 40 years have sucked. It means everything you've done for the last 20 years, 40 years of loving them, playing them in the car, top down, that all sucks. And you go, no, 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 no. And so yeah. we all feel that way. And whether you like Bjork or whether you like the Kinks or whether you like Madonna, they are a person. They they are part of you, of your personality. You you grow up a Madonna fan. You wore the fishnet. You did the hair. And so bands and rock bands are an extension of you. And so when I say that band, I say Joe Bonamassa sucks. You go, hey, wait a minute. But no, that's me. I don't. And so that's that's why it, it, because because it, it devalues the person. Because right. you know, it, it, it's a, it's a, it's an affront and a referendum on their not only their taste but their on life, their being. life. Yes. It, it, and and their band. It's like they wear they. A lot of people have tattoos of yes. Of, you know, it's it's a right. permanent so, thing. Try try to tell a guy with a with a Gene Simmons tattoo that Kiss sucks. You can't, because it meant so much to him that he memorialized it on his being. Right. And now you're saying that is invalid, and you go. No, it's not. And so we all do that. And that's why we will have these discussions at nauseum. Guns N' Roses this, Metallica that, Foreigner this, Pat Benatar that. And that's why when you say the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, you know, look, I look at Patti Smythe who got in and I go, I don't get it. But you know what? She deserves to be there because for somebody somewhere in New York City at CBGB's or Max's Kansas City or wherever she played, she affected their life and changed it. Absolutely. Everybody who's in affected someone's life in a life-changing way. It's like, yeah. like I said, I always say it's it's not a, it's not a referendum on who's in. It's there's a point where right. 
you know, it, it, it's a they're, they're, the point is is you can only these are some of the seminal bands of rock and roll in the mid mid seventies right. to mid eighties are have been shut out of this conversation. But if you listen to KLOS or or any classic rock radio, chances are the bulk of the playlist is going to be from Foreigner Four, Bad Company. Mm-hmm. You know, you're gonna hear yep. "Thick as a Brick" from Jethro Tull. You're gonna hear, you know, uh, you're gonna hear it all. You're gonna hear. You're gonna, you're gonna hear it all. And right. you know, to look at what goes into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, what you really need to do is go back to the back issues of Rolling Stone from the '80s, and you go, "Hey, I'm not seeing a lot of Pat Benatar in this issue." Where, where? Listen, it is a political game. They oh, it, covered a whole bunch of people in the '80s and '90s. They didn't cover, you know, and they left Foreigner out. They let Pat Benatar out. And for some reason, they're still holding a, a whatever. They got their panties in a bunch over it going, we're not letting, not letting Mick Jones in. Okay. okay. All right. Don't let Mick Jones in, you know. The, the, guy, the guy produced Stormfront. The guy produced uh, 5150. The guy's been on all these things. Um, um, oh, no, I'm forgetting the name of the band he was in before uh, Foreigner. Um, Spirit for no, what was he in before Foreigner? He was the, uh, he wasn't, it wasn't Procol Harum or. No, no, no. All right. I, luckily I have my computer. So, right. so keep talking and I will quickly look. All right, before we wrap up, I have a, I have a, um, I have a question. I, I as a, as a journalist, I'm, I'm interested in your take on it. Yes. Um, live versus live with tracks. Ooh. Oh, by the way, he was in Spooky Tooth. There we go. Okay. That's right. Spooky Tooth. Uh, Robin Char was in Procol Harum. Yes. Um, you go to see a live show. Yes. You want to see four dudes up there, warts and all, or do you want to hear it like the record with the Pro Tool uh, rig augmenting it? Boy, What's your take on that? that that is a really a tough one, and I, I'm 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 going to go all over the place with this one. When I go to a smaller club, a theater, a thousand feet, I want the blood, sweat, and tears of that band on the floor. I and and the. My co-host, Alan Niven, always says there's a perfection in the imperfection. Right. And so I like if there's a bum note, if there's feedback, because you go, ah, I got a live show. Yeah. That said, when you go to an arena and you've just put down 350 bucks or 200 bucks to go see whoever, whether it's Post Malone or Madonna or, or, or Kiss on the Reunion Tour, and they come out and it sucks. You just go, wow, I just spent 350 bucks for me and the wife, plus the dinner, plus the drive-in. I've now spent $800 to get to this thing, and it was horrible. Right. And I see it from the artist's perspective. First of all, you have to be perfect every time. Right. Because that's what fans expect. And but, and, and instead of lighters, they're holding this thing right. with the video on and right. for the whole well, show. That's what, but that's it. Social media has changed everything because if I'm sitting here going, hmm, do I go see Joe in Montreal for 150? I really like his albums, but and then I start seeing on Twitter, oh, he sucked in Cincinnati. He was all I go, yeah, maybe I'm not going to spend that cash. Maybe I'm just going to go see Judas Priest next week. So I can understand why an artist wants to be perfect because if they're not, Social media will devastate them, and if they devastate them, it could actually tank a tour. I mean, it can actually go to that that yeah. level. And there are other artists where the song is just a vehicle for the performance. You go see Gwen Stefani, you go see Madonna, you go see Shania Twain, you go see those ones. You're not really there for the songs. You're there 
for the hang and 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 the lasers and the dancing. Right. And so you can't expect Madonna to do two hours of dancing and trapeze like Pink does, yes. and then be on 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 key. So there's a give and take depending who you go see. But if I'm in a tiny bar, there's a hundred people, and you roll up and plug in, and then there's a machine playing. It's like, dude, dude, no, 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 no. We're not doing that. But in the arena shows, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, I remember I remember uh, being at a rehearsal facility in, in uh, North Hollywood where I had my storage locker and I was just going in to get a guitar or something. And I heard a band coming out of Studio C and I was like, oh, yeah, I, I remember these guys and they were they won a singing contest. I'm like, I remember these guys. And that's cool. And I'm sitting outside the door. And I'm like, going, wow, they're killing it. Singers like <laughs> really killing it. And I'm like, boy, that's I, it's good to see a young band <laughs> rehearsing hard and 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 uh, giving Making it their it. all. Yeah, you know, even, even, even when they don't have to, because I hate to rehearse, and I I'm like, right, let's just let's just run through the form. Right. And anyway, the door swings open. There's only one musician <laughs> on the deck. He's playing bass, and the rest of it's coming through this like PA they set up. And I'm like. How does that work? And then I go, oh, my God. And then there's a guy with a computer and, and a bunch of tracks. And I'm like, I go, wow. And here I am and singing and playing guitar all these years like a sucker. I can get away with this. This is great. Get away with this. I'll tell you, there, there's two instances uh, from my concert going experience, which I'll never forget. I was at a festival, the Oceaga Festival in uh, Montreal. And I got to sound check early. And I will never forget these words. Somebody went, I need more computer in the monitor. And I was like, <laughs> you need more computer? What? 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 Uh, and, and the other one, and I'm not going to say the band, but I was at a, a 80s arena act right. concert. And I was at soundcheck at two o'clock in the afternoon. And they were actually soundchecking crowd swell. And I'm like, oh, wow. I'm like, crowd swell. And people are like, what? what? The clapping. They, they were probably. They're like, okay, so at this song, you're going to, and they were practicing the crowd swell. And I was like, my God, are you kidding me? Not yeah. only are they going to be lip syncing tonight, but the audience reaction is going to be piped. And uh, it uh, blew me away. And this was uh, 2018, 2007. I mean, this is not 15 years ago. No, no, no. Wow. And it was a big arena act, big tour. And they were they were they were sound checking Crowdswell, and I went, okay, that's a whole new level of of no 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 no. <laughs> I've, been, <laughs> you know? I've been trying to I've, I've been trying to get my light guy to, to to buy some of those old applause signs from the old sitcoms, <laughs> just light them up, you know. Yeah. I did a good solo. I could just step on a button, you know. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Mitch, thank you for doing this, man. You're one of my favorite journalists, and yeah, I always I always love. Uh, having a conversation with a journalist because I, I think in a different life I would be one because I'm always curious about it. And, and a good journalist is passionate about what they, what they believe in stick the landing and you're a good egg, man. Thanks. Thanks for doing this. Ladies and gentlemen, the wonderful Mitch LaFon host of rock talk with Mitch LaFon. And by the way, happy Canada day to all you Canadians out there. Even brought my Tim Hortons cup for that. That's right. It's, it's, it, you know, it, it, it was, what's a Tim Hortons? I go, just go to Canada. So you, I'm not going to even explain it to you. 
it's, it's, you'll understand. You'll understand as soon as you cross the border. There's a Tim Hortons. It's like a it's a, a Maple Leaf welcoming you, and a Tim Hortons on the right. We're so. we're actually thinking of making our customs uh, Tim Hortons. So as you drive through and go, yeah, I'm just going to Montreal. They'll give you a coffee at the same time. It's it's a new concept. Coffee and a donut. I love it. <laughs> coffee Mitch, donut and get in. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for watching, ladies and gentlemen. This will be on YouTube in perpetuity, so you can watch it anytime. Until next time, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Joe Bonamassa, and you're watching live from Nerdville. See, look, notice the hat. Ooh, I'm gonna need to get one of those. I'll send you one. <laughs> Thank you. And we're good.